Welcome to the Faith and Culture Now podcast. I'm Scott Schiffer. And I'm Erin Newton. And I'm Randall Worley. And we are so glad to have you listening today as we talk about issues surrounding some very controversial type imagery and passages in the Old Testament. And uh, what brought this to my attention was that I sat in a Sunday school class last Sunday, and the Sunday school lesson was over Micah chapter 3. And uh, as that chapter begins, it starts talking about the king of Israel and using cannibalism imagery to talk about how he is mistreating his people. Now, the thing about that passage is that it's not saying he was actually eating the people of Israel. Uh, that's very much imagery being used, and the imagery should be to discuss the reader. Uh, you're to, to look at that and say, this guy is a bad king. Uh, but uh, it made me start thinking about other passages in Scripture that also have some sort of uh, controversial type takes along those lines. Sometimes you find imagery being used, but then sometimes you also see some reality, you know, such as God wiping out humanity in the flood, or, um, you know, even commanding the Israelites to wipe out everything, including the animals, in some of the Canaanite, uh, what is sometimes known as the Canaanite genocide, uh, but also would be, um, you know, the entrance into the promised land, also known as the conquest. So, uh, as we begin today, uh, I just wanted to start by asking uh, Randall, what are some of your thoughts on some of these controversial passages? What are some of the questions maybe that people in your church come to you with when they come across these things when they're reading the text for themselves? I think people sometimes have a, a very sanitized view of the Bible and mainly because they've never read it. Um, <laughs> you know, one of the, the best cures for that is to actually study the Bible. Uh, a lot of times people assume that the Bible conforms to our Western post-Victorian sensibilities, and it doesn't. Uh, it was written well before then, um, and sometimes we confuse our cultural preference for uh, the ethically superior point of view. Um, so I, I, I think that that is part of it, part of the issue. I, I think. We have to understand the Bible is dealing with the big picture issues, life and death, suffering, uh, eternity, um, and uh, the reality of sin. The Bible makes no effort to gloss it over like it's not ugly. Um, and the interaction of God in the world is with the world as it is, in all its ugliness and in all of its sinfulness. So you talk about that Micah passage. Um, to describe uh, leaders as being so self-centered and abusive of the people they're leading as people who are tearing the flesh off their bones and eating it uh, is, is a, a, an appropriate uh, condemnation. Uh, you know, sometimes we sugarcoat things too much. And uh, when something is evil, uh, the Bible has no qualms about painting it in all its ugliness. Um, so some of it is that uh, you, you shouldn't. I, I, I've told I, I've gotten in trouble for saying this before. The Bible is R rated. Um, yeah, but if you want to be accurate to the text, if you're portraying it, it definitely is. Yeah. And and. Uh, 
there are things in there that you probably want to guide your children through. Uh, don't just drop a Bible in their hands and say, have at it, but, but hopefully give them some, some insight and some, some, some wisdom and in, in understanding it because the message is meant to deal with, with the, the deepest depths of, of our depravity and our wickedness. Uh, and I think uh, to the matters of, uh, I, I'm really thankful, uh, um, Aaron has has done this book club, and that's uh, got me reading this uh, book by Tremper Longman III, and I've, I've really appreciated some of the insights because the book is, uh, what is it, Confronting Old Testament Controversies, so it's very much yeah. dealing with the kind of thing you're bringing up here, um, and uh, I think it's, it's helpful to understand um, just the the context, the the imagery that we're dealing with here um, is actually God dealing with the reality of sin uh, in all of its ugliness. Um, yeah. you, the, the thing of talking about genocide, I, I, I agree with with Longman that um, that's really not what's being described. Uh, you have clear examples in like Rahab. You know, she was a Canaanite, probably connected to. A temple prostitution, and yet because she turned to Yahweh, she is spared. Uh, so it isn't just ethnic cleansing; uh, it's a response to sin. Um, yeah, very much so. And I, I think, think even, yeah, uh, just looking at a lot of that in in light of idolatry, and looking at it in light of syncretism, and uh, you know, you hear the you know the. So I just also finished reading another book. It's called Flood and Fury. And it's uh -huh. by Matthew J. Lynch. And in his book, he talks about how, um, you know, you have these passages that are like, kill everybody, kill everything. But then you also have the same passage, you know, you know, several verses down saying, and the people that are still there do this or that. And so you sort of, uh -huh. you, you read the text and you realize, well, they didn't clearly kill everybody, at least not in every situation. And in some that they did. Uh, like Jericho was considered mostly like a military outpost where there probably weren't a lot of, uh, you know, people outside of the army that were there. And so, uh, yeah, just knowing, knowing some of the context and knowing that, Hey, this language is there, but there's a reason for it. And uh, I, I think you're absolutely right on the issue of it's, it's, uh, uh, you know, facing head on the reality of sin. And I would I would also um, caution against uh, I think it's a false division that people suggest that the Old Testament shows God as very military and angry, and the New Testament has uh, fluffy Jesus. You know, um, it's uh, you know uh, my little pony uh, God, and uh, that's not at all the New Testament picture. I've I really do believe that the uh, the little apocalypse uh, in Matthew 24 and 25 and in Mark 13 and, and in Luke, what is it, 22, um, that Jesus is not talking about his second coming, that he's talking about judgment on Jerusalem and the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of Jerusalem. And Jesus is presenting himself as the primary actor in that. He is coming in judgment upon this unbelieving and wicked city and will will bring devastation. And uh, it was devastating. You read the accounts in Josephus, you know, 10,000 people crucified surrounding the city when it was under siege and uh, people dying of hunger inside. It was 
horrendous, absolutely horrendous. And God is presented through the whole Bible as being the absolute sovereign of creation. And he is the one who actually runs the world, not the empires. They rise and fall at his purposes and at his uh, orchestration. And Christ, upon his resurrection, he doesn't say, I'm going to come back and become king. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He already is in charge of everything. So we look around the world, horrendous things are still happening. Nations are attacking other nations and you know, pillaging and raping. And these are things that still happen today. Yeah, very much so. Uh, and and very much. And God is not an, an observer. He is orchestrating human history with redemption as the goal. Yeah. Uh, so to pretend that the Bible is somehow operating outside of that history, that God has a message that has nothing to do with people raping and pillaging, uh, is an absurd uh kind of a, a neutered gospel. I mean, where does God in, insert himself into these really pressing issues? And the fact that God reacts to evil with judgment uh, is, is both in the Old and the New Testament. And the gospel is the only way to change the problem. The gospel is God finally saying, this is how I'm fixing the problem. The judgment is not going to fix it. Mm -hmm. Uh, the gospel is the only thing that can turn a sinner into a saint, that can turn a wicked person into somebody uh, who is experiencing the righteousness of God in his yeah. life. A new creation, right? And yeah. uh, I, I saw something the other day. I read this thing from an atheist, and the atheist was critiquing Christians specifically over the idea of saying Christ is this fluffy, you know, New Testament God. And then you have this angry God of the Old Testament. He said, look, if you believe the doctrine of the Trinity, then everything that God did in the Old Testament, Jesus had to be in uh, harmony with the Father on, and he had to be approving of everything that happened there. And uh, it was, I mean, I, I mean, the critique was not good in the sense that people that have that theology have bad theology, but their critique was good in the sense that it pointed out an inconsistency in a lot of people's faith. And uh, so that's, uh, you know, it's important to recognize it. And, you know, even in the New Testament, when you get past the destruction of Jerusalem into the book of Revelation and you get to the second coming of Christ, it talks about him riding a horse and, you know, essentially the blood of the people being so... Uh, so deep that it's up to, you know, uh, past the horse's legs, you know, walking in like a river of blood. And uh, again, you know, we, we have this as imagery, but it's very warlike imagery. So Aaron, what are some of your thoughts? Oh, man. <laughs> uh, my first thought is I hate this topic. <laughs> um, really, and it's just because it's difficult. Um, and again, you know, uh, Randall mentioned we are, there's a group of us um, that are reading through Tremper Longman's book, um, Old Testament Controversies. And the chapter we still have to meet about and talk about is about divine violence. Does God kill? So it's more, it's a little bit um, focusing on the events where God is the perpetrator, or at least condoning the violence. So, and I know in Micah 6, this is, this is more of a statement of what the violence humans are doing to humans with that cannibalistic um, imagery. Um, 
and it's good. And, and one thing I appreciated at the end of his chapter, and I agree with it, he's like, I'm actually very uneasy about this. And this is somebody who um, wrote a dissertation, you know, and, and has done so many studies and, and books on the holy war or divine violence, you know, God as a warrior, um, that he still comes to this conclusion that that this is a very difficult topic and we can't come to the point that we fully understand it. Um, and I think in light of where culture is with this deconstruction, with trying to, you know, re-analyze what we've been taught compared to what the Bible says and how that makes us feel, you know, wrestling with those ideas, it's a good thing to come to the place that, that we say, I don't like this part about the Old Testament. There are some features about it that make me uncomfortable, but using that as like a launching point to keep reading the Bible, you know, because we sometimes, like Randall said, we sanitize it. Um, it's easier to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament because we don't like those passages, um, or we just recreate who we think God should be um, and just kind of make a, a, a really kind of warped sense of who God is, reread the whole Bible, picking and choosing what we want to believe or not. Um, so I begin by saying this topic is, it's so difficult. And I don't think I've come to any place where I feel there's a secret to understanding it. And I'm now I'm going to tell you what that secret is. No, <laughs> because you have I don't to. Have tell it. us a secret. <laughs> I don't. I have no secret. Um, studying the book of Job is, is a breath of fresh air for realizing the evils that occur and, you know, starting with Job, that it is permitted by God um, for his sufferings. At the end, there's not a solid answer for Job. Um, he gets some peace. And again, some other day we'll talk about Leviathan and how that's a good answer to Job's suffering. But I, I just think that um, we have to embrace this topic in its complexity and in its confusion. Um, but we do have different, um, different instances of this very violent, grotesque, um, oppressive imagery, you know, with Micah, again, that was human versus human. For me, it's easier to accept those verses and be like, Oh, yeah, people are the worst people are just terrible. Um, we see this today, especially in this last week, you know, what has happened with um, the shootings in California, we see people and sin um, can wreak havoc in our relationships with other humans. The harder ones are the plague, you know, the, the Egyptian plague of killing the firstborn, the, the flood and killing all of humanity. And I'm using quotes around all, um, depending mm -hmm. on how, how yeah. universal you want to take the flood. But, um, we have, you know, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah where he's pleading with God. If we can just find one person, will you spare everybody? You know, and it, it comes to this conclusion that maybe they couldn't even find one person, but there still is destruction of an entire community. Mm -hmm. um, and and those that's an interesting community, right? Because 
people oftentimes associate, oh, that's being destroyed because of homosexuality. But then you look at Ezekiel and other chapters and scripture where they talk about these guys were inhospitable to everyone. They were essentially, they were, um, they were detrimental to humanity. They were being taken out because they weren't good for humanity. Right. Right. And so we, we misunderstand, um, what the judgment is, even if we can wrap our minds around like, okay, God can judge that city. Um, you, we, we misunderstand what it was really about. Um, and I think with the conquest, we do the same thing, um, where we want to call it like an ethnic cleansing and they're killing all the Canaanites. Well, there are tiny stories, Rahab, where people of that community, um, could be protected um, by vowing allegiance to, to the Israelites, God. And I, and with the plagues, with the flood, there is an element that there was a way out for some of them that they would have to repent Nineveh, you know, with Jonah, there was a way for that judgment to be stalled or spared. Um, and again, like we can get closer to this understanding of what divine violence really is still not reaching the end of full understanding. Um, but we do have to, to look at each instance of the, the, um, stories that use violent imagery, um, or are very clearly written as a literal violent event. Um, and try to figure out like, what was the purpose of that? Like what is being judged? Um, is it God versus sin? Is it, you know, I don't know. It's it, or is it people versus people? It is yeah. so difficult. Again, I again, I have no secrets um, other than to tell everybody that listens is I am right there with you. I can study the Old Testament for years and still say this is a mystery beyond understanding. But like Randall said, we do have to set aside what we feel should be right um, and understand that God is the sovereign over all of creation, um, that he is holy and righteous and we are not. So we don't always get to be the judge on what he ought to do. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a telling. difficult topic. Yeah. Yeah. The idea of us wanting to be the judge, you know, well, well why would God do that? You know, um, well, <laughs> you know, God, God has reasons, you know, like you may not know them. I may not know them, but they're definitely there. And uh, I think it's important for us to always approach scripture with an attitude of trust. Like if it's in there, there's a good reason that it's in there and we need to wrestle with it. And while I believe that everything in scripture is true, uh, I don't think that we always read and understand it correctly. And so uh, that gets back to this whole idea that Randall has presented about people sort of trying to sanctify the scripture and trying to make it fit into our modern narrative of how the world should be. Uh, But even in our current world, you know, there are the same kinds of vile acts that you find in the Old Testament. And not only are they in our world, but they are very, very prevalent in our world. Um, There was a a pro-life march a while back. And there was a person who was against the march who was walking around asking people interview questions. And there was a guy that had a sign that said, God is pro-life. And the person asked the man, you know, look, I see you got this sign. If God is pro-life, why the flood? And the guy didn't have an answer for him. And, you know, 
when Christians just sort of ignore the Old Testament or ignore the problems, and they can't answer those questions. And Peter makes it abundantly clear in his letters that we need to know what we believe and be ready to give an account for things. And uh, I mean, I would argue that God is all about life. He's the author of life. He's the sustainer of life. He's the protector of life. Um, and uh, I mean, he sent Christ as a means for providing uh, spiritual life in an eternal sense. And so there, there's a lot to God being for life. Uh, but then, you know, you also look at a lot of modern theology that really wants to focus on, well, God just loves everyone and God's so nice. And the problem with this specifically is that it takes away the entire aspect of justice. Uh, you know, when you have people denying the reality of sin or you have people, uh, you know, saying, well, God wouldn't send anyone to hell. Uh, but then you're going, well, but you you also, you know, you look at evils that happen in the world and you think to yourself, there needs to be some justice there. That mm -hmm. event needs justice. And when you take away the judgmental aspects of God's nature and character, you lose the, you lose the justice. And so, uh, again, with the Old Testament, there's a good reason for each of these stories. And sometimes it's a matter of us learning how to read the text correctly. Um, so Trumper Longman his Old Testament Controversies book is phenomenal. Um, and not only that, but he's written a number of books about the Old Testament. I think probably as far as authors go, he's probably helped shape my view of the Old Testament more than any other single author uh, of Old Testament literature. Uh, the book I mentioned earlier, Flood and Fury by Matthew Lynch, uh, has also been a, a very helpful book for me in, in looking at these particular topics. And one of the things that he mentions is that if you look at the text and read the text in light of sort of this idealized, you know, this is what we hope to do, uh, then you find later passages sort of that are more realistic. This is kind of how it actually went. And so sometimes you see an exaggeration of the violence in some passages and then a more realistic look on the violence in later passages. And what you find, especially with the Canaanite um, conquest, is that after the Jews were there, uh, they were surrounded by Canaanites. There was never a time when the Canaanites weren't in the land. And um, in fact, you know, you find controversial issues coming up all throughout, you know, the, uh, the life of King Saul and King David and others, because the Canaanites always remain in the land. And so I think sometimes we go, oh yeah, and Joshua, God says to go wipe everybody out. So they just killed everyone. And it's like, well, no, if you read the text, they didn't. Um, and so then you have to ask yourself, did they disobey God or were they simply, you know, writing in a certain kind of language meant to help them, uh, get this sort of idealistic view of we're going to come in here. God's giving us this land and God did give them the land and they did have control over much of the land, but there was also parts of the land they didn't really have control of. And then there was a lot of places where they were living in peace with Canaanites because honestly, just like in today's world, most people just want to live in peace. And, yeah. uh, you know, so you have countries where there's guerrilla warfare going on and, the you know, you have lots of battles and things, but most of the people in those countries don't really want to have any part of that. They just want to, you know, live their life, live off their land and, you know, enjoy their family. And so we have, again, just like with the Old Testament, these same kind of situations today, uh, right now with all the controversy in Iran, um, at this point, I'm aware of over 400 people being put to death. Um, 
they uh, recently told the soccer players in Iran that if they didn't stand, because they didn't stand up once when the national anthem for Iran was played, uh, they told them if you do that again, we're going to, uh, you know, uh, potentially put family members of yours to death. Don't do that. And uh, there was one soccer player that was seen at a protest and they destroyed his home while he was gone, you know, with the World Cup. Um, there are, you know, many, many people over over 2000 people have been arrested in the country and the people can barely do anything because they have no means of protecting themselves against the violent, aggressive regime of the country, you know, the country's leadership. But the uh, what would he's not called a president, but who acts as what we would look at as like a president of you know the United States, um, that individual in Iran uh, has recently said on camera that he feels like women are of the same value as the cattle and that there's no reason for them to have the rights to education or really anything else. And, um, you know, you, you, all these protests started because a young woman wore her hijab, which is your head covering incorrectly, and she was put to death for it. And, uh, you, you know, you look at this kind of stuff happening in the world and you think justice needs to be done there. I think any Christian should be able to look at that and say, you know, you know, God, we need to call out to you to do something about this. And, you know, unfortunately, uh, you know, as much as some, you know, musicians would like all, you know, talks from governments to be peaceful and everybody go, oh yeah, you know what? We are abusing people. Let's just stop. <laughs> Oftentimes that's not how it plays out in reality. And sometimes there does have to be bloodshed in order to bring about justice. And I think you find the same thing in the Old Testament. Uh, Randall, what are some of your additional thoughts? Well, I'm thinking, you know, uh, I think by by analogy, by extension, I can see some similarities in my own experience as pastor. Oftentimes, uh, people perceive a problem in the life of the church. Somebody's out of line, and they'll be frustrated with me uh, for not doing this or doing that or doing the other. And uh, perhaps people aren't aware that I'm trying to balance the overall health of the church, uh, obedience to the instructions of Christ, and sometimes uh, expediency uh, or things happening in a certain way are not the top priorities we're called to in Christ. So uh, the way you have to navigate situations oftentimes is a lot more complicated than somebody who is only per peripherally involved. If we extend that to God, my question would be, well, how would you have done it? How would you fix the problem of violence and abuse and rapes and mutilations and horrendous, horrendous things? Oh, but let's let's throw in that we're going to preserve the ability to make choices. We're going right. to preserve free will. Uh, how, how do we fix the problem. God's response has been the gospel, redemption. And a huge part of that, I noticed this a lot when I was preaching through Revelation, a huge part of how God addresses the problem of sin and the deception that it throws over us. Because the problem with sin is not only is it destroying our lives and the world, but it's trying to convince us that we're not the problem, that the problem is somebody else. And uh, Revelation has some very strong language about how God brings suffering to bear on humans 
to help us come to grips with the reality of our own part in it. And the sad thing in Revelation is, even though God did this, the people still did not repent. They're not willing to turn from it. So uh, I think God is willing to use extreme measures to give people at least a chance to wake up and realize they need rescue. Mm -hmm. That can mean horrendous things. That can mean hurricanes. That can mean war. That can mean terrible, terrible, soul-crushing loss. I mean, that is the extent to which he loves. He will do whatever it takes to make it possible for us to be rescued from this. And if that means horrendous suffering, then uh, God will do it because he loves us too much to just say, well, that's too hard. Yeah, I think uh, your your reference of Revelation is important here. I think if I remember correctly, that's in chapter 6 where, um, you know, God is, or, you know, John essentially writes that God has said to him, you know, the people know that if they will repent, the suffering will stop, but their hearts are so hard that they have no desire to do so. And, um, you know, I mean, I think that's, you know, one of my cases against universalism, you know, God could have created a world where everybody was going to be saved, but, you know, in doing that, there's no freedom of choice. And it seems to me that God has created a world where he believes that freedom is somehow better or greater than having lack of freedom. And some philosophers have even argued that God would be malicious if there was no freedom, but that because he's created a world that contains evil, he's actually more of a good God than he would be otherwise. And that's maybe difficult for people to wrap their mind around because how can God bringing about a world that contains so much evil be good? Uh, but, you know, there's there's value in freedom of choice. And people can say, well, I would rather live in a world without that. Well, you might think that until you're in that situation. But I can tell you from experience, when people have jobs where they don't have a lot of choices in what they have to do, they tend to not like it very much. Yeah. And uh, imagine that on you know, the nth level, uh, you know, when it, you know, when it comes to then every decision, you know, you ever would have had a chance to make that's now gone. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to go back to something you said when we were, when you were talking about the situation in Iran and all over the world where we see these atrocities and we say just, you know, judgment, justice need to be done. Um, And if we take that, and then we go back to the Old Testament. I think this is what makes it hard because as you're reading about Pharaoh and the Egyptians, and yes, they have um, abused the Hebrews that are there. Um, Pharaoh is kind of your antagonist in the story, but the children, the children that die, they. Mm-hmm. They are not responsible for the, you know, like that. I think that's what's hard because when we say like justice needs to be done against these people who've abused the Iranian women and men, well, that is good. And I don't know how many people would argue with that. Maybe some pacifists would argue and mm-hmm. I don't know, we could, we can make an argument, but yeah, um, I, that it, we have some places where like, it doesn't translate um, completely because the Canaanites, were they um, so evil 
and you know in the eyes of how we would view it today now obviously they are worshiping other gods and god does demand um, allegiance solely to him and so for that they are guilty um, along with every other culture at the time um you know why why is it the canaanites obviously this is i think we could get into all these other sub conversations about you know uh we as you know anglo americans are living on land that was not empty when you know everybody came over so it's like it's the same thing where we can sometimes misuse the violence that has occurred in the old testament to justify continuing that violence there was a tweet today that was talking about an interview or a book that basically said interviewing a mass murderer i think of of some sort of Mm -hmm. i don't know some guy and they said well could a good guy have taken the gun away from you and stopped this and his response was i thought i was the good guy with the gun and just this shocking idea of like sometimes we're reading these divine violence or divinely condoned violent Mm -hmm. stories in the old testament and then some people i think are misconstruing that as let's have a crusade or let's go commit some sort of violence that you know we're like well the bible it was fine i'm just enacting god's righteous judgment um and so i think this is where i get so uneasy because you're like i understand god can and should judge um evil and wickedness it's hard for us to say like your personal religious beliefs can be judged by god but that is what the bible says and i you know and i am believing that um but that doesn't mean it always sits so firm and easy in my soul it's sad it motivates me to to do different things but anyways there's my my comment oh those those are great comments i've got a couple thoughts here one is uh referring to the mass murderer or you know just any person who thinks they're a vigilante you know doing god's justice right dealing out god's justice and that is that you know we place god's judgment in the hands of god and we don't take his judgment into our own hands and over time we believe in you know what we call progressive revelation where god gives us a more complete story from genesis to revelation and so now you look at all of scripture and what it has to say on the whole And uh, what is clear, especially laid out in the New Testament, is that God gives authority to governments to bring about justice, Hmm. but not individual people. So we don't take violence into our own hands because that's the place of the government. And I think the idea there is that governments who are run, you know, governments that are run well uh, should have their heads on their shoulders when they're determining what proper punishments should be for certain actions. And uh, I mean, you see wildly different punishments for different things, uh, you know, from country to country. But um, another thing uh, is that in the Old Testament era, uh, oftentimes your king was representative of the God that you worshiped and as such was sort of like the not really embodiment of your deity, but there was really no understanding of separation of church and state in the ancient world. And so, you know, you look at David and Goliath and, you know, first Goliath is taunting Saul and Saul refuses to come out. And David's problem with that is that Saul's making Yahweh look bad 
by not going out and defending the people. And so David essentially is saying, you know, look, I'll go for the Lord to, to do this. And, uh, you know, when Goliath is taunting the Israelites, he's taunting their deity, um, not just the people. And yeah. Saul, who is sort of the representative of the people, uh, also should be the one who, um, I guess, if you will, in, in some respects, uh, represents God to the people. So it's not that he is God or not that he is even a priest, but that um, his actions should show uh, his leading from Yahweh. And sometimes, um, you know, when you look at some of these other cultures, uh, judgments come on more than just the king or the Pharaoh, because the Pharaoh's representative of all of the people in the land and the ideas of the people in the land. Now, that's not a uh, that's not an answer for every single issue in the Old Testament, but you do find that on occasion. Uh, and then referring to the Exodus event, we oftentimes read, and the angel of death took the firstborn of every home, um, every home that didn't have, of course, the blood of the lamb put on the doorpost. And that was available to the Egyptians and the Israelites. Um, but I think we often look at that and say, all these babies were dying. But firstborn is not your youngest child. It's your oldest child. Mm -hmm. And so. Uh, oh, I mean, for some, for some, for some. their only <laughs> child. Correct. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and so uh, I, I think that when you look at this particular issue in uh, in the Exodus account, the idea is Pharaoh, your next heir to take the throne will be gone. And uh, it's really more of a, uh, if you will, official type judgment on the house of Pharaoh than it is on the house of all the Egyptians. But unfortunately, you know, you look at that and go, well, but there were negative consequences for all the Egyptians. And how do you reconcile that? And there's where you get into, you know, some of this tension. Life is messy. And something I've said in a lot of my classes is that, uh, you know, there are, uh, we as people live in the gray. We live in the gray. We like everything to be black and white but we live in the gray and every day we're presented with truth claims and we have to determine, you know, does this go in the black category or the white category? You know, do we uh, categorize this claim as true or is it false? Do we accept it or reject it? And as people, sometimes we miscategorize stuff. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why you have a lot of different denominations in Christianity uh, because they've looked at the same text, the scripture, and they've come to some different conclusions on what the Bible's teaching about certain practices, especially related to like church order and, um, you know, church tradition. And so uh, you have these different denominations because they see the text and they've taken the claims and they've categorized them in a different manner. I think in the same way, you look at a lot of these stories from the Old Testament and, you know, life is messy and you have to categorize, you know, well, what's the reason why God did this? And sometimes you say to yourself, I don't actually know what the reason is why God did it this way. He could have done it another way, but he chose to do it this way. And, you know, as Christians, we go, you know, God is just and we trust him. Uh, but we also recognize that sometimes there are things that we should have to wrestle with. And yeah. wrestling with things shouldn't be a detriment to our faith. Uh, in fact, uh, I am so encouraged by reading the Psalms because the psalmist is very often very discouraged. And yeah. in some Psalms, it begins with, God, where are you? Why don't yeah. I even see you at work around me? What, yeah. what are you doing? Why are you leaving me? 
to all these people that are against me. And you see them struggling. And the psalmist struggle in the same way that everybody struggles. We all have struggles with God. And especially in American Christianity, there's this idea that you sort of just, as a Christian, you have to get it together. You should always hear from God in your quiet time, or you should always feel like you're close to the Holy Spirit. And guess what? Nobody feels that way all the time. And so one of the problems with sanitizing the Bible is that we also take away from a lot of the realness of the struggles of even God's own people. You know, David, a man after God's own heart, had some very serious problems, very serious struggles. And there were times where, I mean, you look at the Psalms and you're like, I think he was dealing with anxiety and depression. And he probably was. And so, uh, you know, as Christians, we need to recognize that uh, it's okay to not always feel close to God. Or it's okay to look at something in the text and say, you know, that's in there and I just don't understand it. But the fact that you don't understand it doesn't have to rock your faith to the core. And uh, therein lies the idea of you approach scripture with an attitude of trust. What it says is true, but we don't always know the right way to interpret it or understand what it's saying. And sometimes we read something in the text and we think this is what this means. And then later we realize, oh, that's not what that meant. And, uh, you know, that happens to everyone. Yeah, I think I would also point out that um, God has throughout all history, Old Testament, New Testament to this day, has worked his sovereign plan uh, by orchestrating nations and empires. Uh, and and it's consistently laid out in the Bible that God raises them up and he brings them down and uses them for the purposes he has as the architect of human history. It isn't a human accomplishment. It's something God is is orchestrating. And if we look at human history, we can see a definite progression from barbarity and cruelty to a much better life for most humans today. Uh, It's a very linear progression. God has clearly been doing it well. We like to pat ourselves on the back and say, we figured it out. But but the Bible says, no, God's the one who's been making sure that the right people died at the right time so that the right people living carried forward the right things and and use this on a macro scale. So what we have with Israel is the one nation on earth that was aware of what God was doing with them. And when they're fighting wars, God is involved and in, in giving them specific instructions. You're fighting these guys. I want you to do this. I want you to, everybody else is unaware of God's hand, but they're no less under God's control. God talks about the Babylonians, even the the horrible, horrible Assyrians as his instruments. They just don't know it. What we have in the Old Testament is a record of a people, one nation on earth, who was aware of how God was using them in history. When we get to the New Testament, it becomes clear that nation is not the call. Uh, The gospel is for all nations, and the people of God now are called to ignore that, let God take care of the nation part, and our duty is to bring the re- the redemption message to the ends of the earth. That's the only way it's ever going to be fixed, yeah. And uh, but still, you can have a Christian who, for example, serves in the armed forces and becomes part of God's sovereign exercise of violence where it's needed and, and force where it's needed, 
And uh, you trust, as I believe Christians can both be pacifists and say, man, I just cannot take a human life. I just can't see how to do that. And one who says, I trust that the God who puts people in power and who runs governments uh, can use me in the armed forces to accomplish good in the world. Uh, I, I think both of those are valid positions. And they're necessary positions, right? The pacifists help keep the non-pacifists in check. And the non-pacifists keep the world where the pacifists can exist. And so uh, it sort of goes hand in hand. <laughs> Maybe that's a bit of an exaggeration, but, uh, you know. I, I like it. <laughs> I think it's good. Um, you know, I, I feel like every every one of us, every all three of us, have at least alluded to this idea of like progression, linear. You know, you talk about progressive revelation, a linear um, progression through history from barbarianism to semi-better civilization in some places, um, you know, not really speaking for the majority world, but, um, I think that that is one thing that helps me, you know, have a piece about the old Testament to stay committed to it is, you know, the word trajectory, watching the trajectory of how God is working through history, um, even in the places that I don't feel very comfortable with it and how God um, chose to let things play out or was divinely part of that. Um, and as a woman in in this realm or as a, just a Christian woman who's taking the Bible seriously, we have been doing this for a long time because of how women are portrayed um, you know, I'd written down before we talked about like, what about the violence against women? Um, what about, you know, I just wrote on, um, Isaac passing off Rebecca as his sister to kind of like protect himself and Sarah, you know, Rebecca gets, she's okay. She never gets taken into the home, but just thinking about what about Sarah when Abraham did it? What was that first night? Like, Let, you know, it says they never consummated anything, but, I would be angry um, if my husband was like, if a guy comes by and wants to take you home, you're just going to go with him because I'm I'm afraid um, that wouldn't be cool. I feel like there's probably some spats that happened after that, um, you know, and like looking at Judges 20 with the um, Levites concubine or second wife. There's that's a whole nother discussion, but her body being cut up into 20 pieces and there's a question if she was, you know, was she fully dead or did he kill her off and then cut her up? Um, just the treatment of women. And we talked about that with Iran. Um, in the Bible, a lot of those violent or abusive moments, they're not even spoken of in a judgmental way. It's just passed over like, oh, this happened. If you're a woman reading this, you're loved. Don't worry. You know, it's very hard to read that. Yeah. Um, but what brings peace? is the trajectory as we read through um, and see how God really did value women and did use women. And we, we just see it a little bit more. And part of reading the Old Testament is understanding who wrote it. Oh, it's men in a patriarchal system. So they are using the language of their time. Um, and so we have some grace to, to say like, these things are not gonna be addressed because that wasn't part of society. Now I could be angry with God of, you should have inspired them to say something, um, you know, with Bathsheba, like you could have condemned, you know, he's condemned for killing Uriah, but 
there still was Bathsheba and her yeah. life got changed. Yeah. Why not being condemned for, you know, stealing the man's wife? Why not right. being condemned for forcing her into a relationship? Why not being condemned from yeah. taking her out of her home and moving her into your, your castle and whatever else, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, so well, you have to watch unlike, that. Unlike uh, the intertestamental writings that try to sanitize everything in that story, David is very clearly portrayed as the villain. Oh, yes. She's the victim. Uh, not much is said about her, uh, but but David is in no way uh, presented as, oh, well, you know, guys will be guys. That That's not the way the story reads. Um, but yeah, I, I think, well, a lot of times the narratives of the Bible just drop horrendous things, and many times the narrator doesn't doesn't see fit to comment on it. Right. Uh -huh. uh, it's left to us in light of the rest of the Bible to look at that and say, oh, good grief, you know, <laughs> I'd be horrified at it. And the whole book of Judges is that way. I mean, the, that chopping that woman up and throwing her, sending her body parts out to the Israelites, that is meant to, even in an, in an ancient culture, I'm sure that that was meant to be a shocking story. It, it, you're not supposed to read that and think, oh, that's a nice uh, event. <laughs> Yeah, you know, you know, things desensitize us to violence, and that's a story that's meant to resensitize you yeah. exactly to it. Yeah. And uh, sort of, we can go come in along with the lines of what Randall's saying, you know, a lot of these stories in the Old Testament, they're just sort of written, this is kind of what happened, yeah. without a lot of comment. But also throughout the Old Testament, even though it's a patriarchal society, you see God continually intervening and doing things on behalf of women. So, right. you know, Hagar's kicked out. And God comes to Hagar and is just like, I'm going to make you a nation. And there, there's a way for her. And you say the same thing with Rahab. The spies go in. They're not good spies. They get, you know, I mean, the king's already found out and he's sending people looking for them. And, and she hides them and they make a deal with her to bring her in. Um, you find the same thing with Ruth, right? She's a Moabitess, but there's a way to bring her in. And uh, Bathsheba is uh, likely a Hittite, just like Uriah. And you find all three of these women in the lineage of Christ. And that, you know, I mean, not only is it odd that they would be in the lineage, because you typically didn't even mention women's names in the lineage, but these are women of other cultures. And I think that speaks to God's openness, even through the Old Testament, to bring in the foreigner. I mean, there's a lot of rules in the law about opening uh your your uh cities to the foreigners incorporating them in and and immersing them in your culture and so uh we do see a lot of that in scripture but a lot of the events that are written about are written from just sort of this happened and this happened and this happened and there's not a lot of thought given to that in many circumstances i do think the bible even the old testament is deliberately subversive of patriarchy uh, very much so biblical authors couldn't even help themselves they're constantly telling us about women doing stuff they're not supposed to be doing and it has nothing to do with the story <laughs> why are they including these women in their in their genealogies that are all men well but let me tell you about this lady who uh tamar yeah. why why do you bring up tamar yeah oh you well know? i mean i read a whole book on <laughs> women in the cult of Israel, um, like cultic worship, like, so religious yeah. cultic practices, um, which is a whole nother story because she <laughs> ends with this idea, but, um, just that 
there's so many instances where it's a silent voice. You know, you don't hear the voice of the women, but they're there and they're there enough that they probably had a bigger role than we see from the text. Yeah. Um, and that's encouraging. Yeah. I think you find the same thing in the New Testament. You know, um, you know, people are always, you know, putting women down with, you know, well, they need to be silent in the church and blah, blah, blah. Paul doesn't allow them to speak. Well, in the first Corinthians where he says women can't speak, he also says they can prophesy, which typically involves speaking, you know, at least the last time I checked. <laughs> and, uh, you know, in Romans chapter 16, he mentions 10 women by name yeah. who are part of his missionary team, you know, and yeah. we, I think, you know, most of the time we just think, oh, Paul went to the city and planted a church. Like Paul went to that city with like 30 people and stayed there for six months planting yeah. a church you know it wasn't like he just went there said some stuff and a couple weekends later he was gone um, that's not how it worked uh, but you don't have all of that written in the text because you know uh, I'm all of it's not I guess meant to be in the text not inspired but I think also just based on normal concerns like not having enough you know I'm going to say paper we know it wasn't actual like paper like we have today but <laughs> not enough paper available to write all of that down uh, I mean, my goodness, in the ancient world, they didn't even put spaces between words, you know, uh, so uh, they, they, it was a precious commodity and they wrote the bare minimum of what they had to write uh, so that they were able to say everything they could in as few words as possible. So, uh, you know, we, and when we look at the scriptural text, all throughout, we see God doing things for women. We see Christ doing things for women. Uh, he doesn't condemn the adulterous woman. He accepts the perfume on his feet from the prostitute. He tells Mary Magdalene that she should be allowed to sit and learn with the male disciples at his feet. Mm -hmm. And he, you know, goes to Peter's mother-in-law's house. And it's clear that, you know, he's got a relationship with her and, you know, she's done some good to help provide for and care for the disciples. And, uh, you know, so we, we see this kind of stuff all throughout and it's easy to, you know, hear one story and think, oh, look at this. The Bible just hates women. The Bible thinks you should kill every child and every animal, you know, yeah. and, you know, but when you look at what we did in the conquest, not the conquest, the crusades, Christians had to apologize for the crusades because they didn't match the overall teaching of scripture. No. And when you look at any given story in the Bible, you can sort of make it out to be like, and this is what the Bible says. But when you look at that story in light of its larger context, or in light of all of the scriptural context, you begin to see a very different picture. And that's why it's important for people to be biblically literate, not just knowing the New Testament, but knowing the Old Testament. Uh, I tell my students all the time, 75% of the Bible is the Old Testament. And if you ignore it, you're ignoring three-fourths of God's word to us, his people. Yeah. And that's really unfortunate, you know. And I get that it can be hard to read through all the genealogies. And, uh, you know, when you're looking at, you know, the book of Obadiah, and you're like, I have no idea what's going on here, uh, because you don't know anything about the cultural landscape at the time and the century in which it was written. Uh, but that's why it's important for everybody, not just Bible scholars, to do serious study about the backgrounds and the history of the text. And, you know, so what I encourage people to do oftentimes is, you know, buy a commentary on a book of the Bible. And as you read the Bible, read the commentary with it. And, you know, after a few years of doing that, because take your time, you know, I mean, you could go through two or three books a year 
And uh, after a few years of doing that, you'll have a much deeper perspective on the text, a much better understanding of the text, but also you'll be able to start really piecing together, oh, this kind of stuff is in here because of all of these cultural issues that had escaped me because they weren't you know, laid out in the text, because why would they have been? When they were written, the people knew their culture. They didn't have to write it all down for the people living in that time period to understand, but people who come after that time period need help. And there's a big, there's a big gap between, uh, you know, the 1400s BC or the 500s BC, or even, you know, 180 and our world today. Yeah. Yeah. On this issue of women and the Bible being written by patriarchs, um, I'll have to say I, I was raised complementarian, and there are a handful of passages in the New Testament that are the reason for that. Um, but when I got down to studying the, what the Bible had to say about it, uh, what what convinced me I was misunderstanding those few passages is the overall weight of Scripture and the way the whole Bible subverts the patriarchy it was written under. Um, and women are constantly doing things they're not supposed to do. You know, even in the Chronicles genealogies, they stop to tell us, oh, and this lady founded a couple of cities. Hmm. Again, what does that add to the story of the history of Israel? Um, but they they felt like they couldn't help themselves. They had to throw that in there, you know. And in the New Testament, we have these letters of Paul, and we think, okay, women should not be doing – I'm convinced it's mistranslation. It's not women. It's wives. But uh, women should not be doing all this stuff, and yet there they are doing it with Paul. Uh, and, you know, the fact that Paul easily uh, praises women like Chloe and, and Junia and um, that the way that he – when he's talking about Priscilla and Aquila, he mentions Priscilla first. Notice he also never in his letters does he call her Priscilla, which is a diminutive form of her name. It's kind of like saying Billy. He always calls her Prisca which I think is his way of raising her status and speaking of her in the, in the most honoring way he can uh, so that those reading the letter take her seriously. Um, and she's doing, she's correcting one of the great teachers of the first century, Apollos. Um, and, you know, to then go around and say, oh, but Paul says women can't teach men anything. That's absurd. Clearly uh, we're misunderstanding what Paul's talking about. Yeah, I, I, I didn't mean to totally uh, derail <laughs> our conversation, but it all goes into this conversation that we have to read the Bible canonically, like the whole thing as a unit um, to see that we could take one story, we could take the plague of the firstborn and say God is a ruthless killer of children or let's say the firstborn is an old man of the, of the elderly, you know, there's no respect. Um, we could say that, but that misconstrues who God is because we've isolated one text and mm. basically made a full decision on who God is and what justice is really like and what his righteousness is like. Um, but that's inappropriate. Um, we do it with women. I feel like we're easier, um, and maybe further along with the women passages to be like, okay, yes, we understand there's been a change and we didn't understand that as well as we did. And we have to do the same with these 
these stories about violence or the images that are grotesque. Um, and I think that that's important. Again, we still live in the tension um, that we're not really sure how this all works out and why was it described this way, but this is the book we have, so we have to move forward with it. And we don't write off those passages, right? So even, you know, Second Timothy or First Corinthians, where Paul says some things that a lot of women don't really like to hear. Uh, why does he say those things? We don't say, oh, just write that passage off. We say, well, how is the right way to understand this passage? Because there's got to be a way to understand it that makes it, uh, or not really makes it, that's not a good word. There's got to be a way to understand it that allows it to be interpreted in light of the rest of scripture right. in a way that is um, unifying to all of the text. Right. And I think you find the same thing with the violent issues in the Old Testament. I'm going to mention one more quick book today. Uh, one of my colleagues, Dr. Alan Street, wrote a book a few years ago called uh, Subversive Meals, uh, an analysis of the Lord's Supper under Roman domination during the first century. Uh, but it's an interesting book because in this, he talks about essentially the subversive work of Christ and the subversive work of God. And Randall, you mentioned that a minute ago. And uh, I think that you can find this sort of subversive act of God all throughout scripture where he oftentimes doesn't do what he's expected to do. One of the issues in the Old Testament is Hosea marries a, a woman of ill repute, right? And I've heard people say, no, 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 she was a faithful wife when he married her, and later she became unfaithful. The problem is that doesn't match what the text says. The text says, I'm going to have you marry an unfaithful woman. And likely she was a temple prostitute for one of the other cultic religions. And, uh, you know, but I've heard people say, well, God doesn't work that way. Well, he doesn't work that way, except for in the event with Hosea, where he did work that way. And, uh, you know, the whole idea here is that God's being subversive, just like he frequently is. Uh, and he sort of, uh, you know, throughout all of scripture breaks stereotypes and he undermines culturally accepted practices that while they are um, widespread in that day and age, aren't really the best way to live out uh, life under the uh, authority of God and his kingdom. And so, again, uh, just to sort of, I guess, sort of summarize today's, uh, you know, the flood is difficult. The plagues and exodus are difficult. The conquest is difficult. The way that women are sometimes portrayed in scripture is difficult. But we live in a messy world. We live in a gray area. And in that gray area, we have to learn to live with the tension of some of these stories. And uh, we work to discern how the best way is to understand and interpret them. But we don't have it all figured out. But not having it all figured out doesn't mean our faith is invalid or that we should abandon it. It simply means that we don't have it all figured out. And that's okay because we're finite creatures. We don't have exhaustive knowledge on everything God does and why he does it or why he chose to have it included in the text that we have been given as scripture. But what is clear is that when you look at scripture on the whole, things are progressing constantly towards redemption. Uh, in Genesis, you find creation. In Genesis, you find the fall. And the very first act going towards redemption happened in the garden when God uh, does the first animal sacrifice and provides clothing for Adam and Eve. And from that moment on, the work of redemption begins. 
The work of redemption finds its fulfillment in the person of Christ and the work that he did on the cross and his death and resurrection, but it finds its completion in the new world, in the new heaven and earth, when God makes all things new, when God brings about permanent justice, when he rights all wrongs, and when he puts everything properly under his authority and control as the king of the cosmos. And uh, in our world now, uh, as Christians, we understand what it means to live in the kingdom of God, and we get to share that kingdom with others around us. That's one of the ways we're meant to evangelize. We share the goodness and the blessings of being under the authority of God with others uh, so that in the midst of all of the evil still happening in our world, there's a glimpse of what things should look like uh, in our faith. So for those of you guys who are listening today, we thank you, and we will see you again next time on the Faith and Culture Now podcast.